You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today we've got a topic that where we've covered a few times on the show here before, but we've never covered it with an Old Testament scholar. And that's what we're doing here for the first time. At, in fact, I'd like to see more Old Testament scholars write on this kind of thing here. I think David Lamb has, but we're talking about the Canaanite conquest today, what are we supposed to make sense of these passages? I mean, we're, we're Christians, we talk about a God of love, and then we see him sending armies into a country and saying, go ahead and kill everyone there. How do we understand this? Well, to discuss this, I've brought on one of our favorites. Uh, he's one that if I read any book on the Old Testament nowadays, I usually look and see if this guy's in the bibliography immediately. Say, okay, now I know he's interacting with the best here. My guest today is uh, John Walton, Dr. John Walton. He's researched in his engineer, energized presentations are rooted in his passion for drawing people into a better understanding of God's self-revelation in Scripture. He's got his PhD at Hebrew Union College. He's a professor of the Old Testament at Wheaton College and Graduate School. He focuses his research on the literature and cultures of the ancient Near East and the Old Testament with a particular interest in Genesis. Before his work, Wheaton, John taught for 20 years at Moody Bible Institute. He's authored many articles and books, including The Lost World of Adam and Eve, The Lost World of Genesis 1, Genesis 1 as Ancient Cosmology, and Ancient Near Eastern Thought in the Old Testament. John also served as general editor of the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary Old Testament and co-author of the IVP Bible Background Commentary, Old Testament. John's ministry experience includes church classes for all age groups, including high school Bible studies and adult Sunday school classes, as well as serving as a teacher for the, Bi- teacher for the Bible in 90 days. Dr. Walton, welcome back to the Deeper Waters podcast. Great to have you here again. Good to be back with you, Nick. Well, if my audience doesn't know much about who you are, can you tell us a bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing Well, I was raised in a Christian family that spent a lot of time in the Bible, learning the Bible. Um, So I learned from my parents. I learned in my church. And so I had a really early start uh, in in the Bible and particularly the Old Testament. Um, I never saw that as necessarily a career path. but um, And so as a result, when I went to college, um, I was an economics and accounting major didn't really know what else to do. Um, It wasn't until I was nearly done college that it suddenly occurred to me that um, my interest in Old Testament could actually be a vocation, that I could uh, be a professor of Old Testament. And the minute the thought occurred, that um, that became my passion and my, my objective. So 
then I went on to grad school at Wheaton College and uh, on to my PhD, as you mentioned, at Hebrew Union College. So that's, that's kind of how I got into this. Uh, in one sense, I was trained for it from an early age and only had to get to the point where I recognized how all the pieces fit together. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm pretty sure I've asked this before, but I'll go ahead and ask again since it's a whole new show and such. That so many of us, I think, in Christian projects get really excited about proving the historical Jesus and his resurrection and such. And we can become so New Testament-centered that we often can treat the the Old Testament, as if it's kind of like, you know, that other book there and such. What gets you so excited about the Old Testament? Well, the Old Testament really gives us the foundation for the New Testament. As you well know, um, Mm -hmm. Jesus and the New Testament authors, the only scripture they had was the Old Testament. And when they talked about the value of scripture and the objectives of scripture, they were talking about the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that we ignore God's revelation at, to our peril. And if God has given us this information, we need to spend the kind of time with it that's going to make it make its uh, teaching accessible to us. That's hard to do. And that's one of the reasons why people kind of shy away from the Old Testament, because they really don't know how to get from it something that feels to them like God's Word. And that's what I've been working at for near 40 years now, to try to help people uh, see how to do that. Yeah, I can't help think about all the times I've heard uh, someone being given, like, say, the plan of salvation and such. And they go from Adam and Eve and skip everything else and go straight to the birth of Jesus. And I'm listening to something, you know, I think just maybe some of that other stuff in there could be important. Just maybe... Well, I think, you know, we we value so highly the salvation that has been given to us, the redemption that we've experienced in Christ, and uh, we value that, but we can sometimes get so focused on that that we miss the larger aspect of God's plans and purposes and what he's doing in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, salvation was only a part of that. And if we make that the only thing, then of course we're going to think that the Old Testament doesn't have much to offer us. Right. Because the Old Testament doesn't talk about the redemption of people from their sins. And so I think to some extent that's a, a misguided approach because uh, the Bible's not just about God saving us. Uh, God had a purpose before we sinned. And we ought to think about how the Old Testament helps us to understand God's plans and purposes at a larger scale. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk, start talking about the book, The Lost War of the Israelite Conquest. You know, for me, though, is when the humorously say, you know, I think last time we were on, I'd said, I think there could be some more Lost World books coming in. You were saying, no, I think that's the last one, but it looks like there is another one. If I'm correct, there's more coming, aren't there? Yeah, there's two more coming next year. Uh, Lost World of the Flood should be out around April, and Lost World of the Torah, probably about this time next year. Well, we'll be planning a couple more interviews, I suppose, then. Now, if you were to sum up your basic thesis of the book of the Lost World of the Israelite Conquest, what would you say? Well, I think, first of all, I would say that despite the fact that we use the word in the title, this is not a conquest. Mm. 
or at least that's not the right way to think about it. Um, and so we've, we've misunderstood the nature of it from the beginning. In the process, we have um, misunderstood some of the um, elements of genre. We've misunderstood some of the terms that are used, key terms. And we've, we've lost touch with the ancient Near Eastern context, which can actually help us quite a bit to understand what the text is doing. So to, to begin to reach a, a new understanding, we have to recognize some of the mistakes we've made along the way that have given us the understanding that we have. Mm-hmm. You know, when you say about mistakes along the way, you do say that there are some Christian apologists who have written on this topic, no doubt with good intentions and want to do the best, but that they've just misunderstood. And I can't but think that you're probably thinking about books like Is God a Moral Monster and Did God Really Command Genocide, both of which we've had the authors of on this show. I mean, is, is that what you were thinking about? Well, those apologists um, are, are trying to address the topic in the terms that have been laid out for the conversation today. Right. Um, they're trying to deal with skeptics who claim those things, that God's a moral monster, ethnic cleansing, and genocide. And they're trying to address Christians who have been led to think that way. So I don't, I don't blame them for framing the question that way. That's the way that it's framed in the modern conversation, and apologists have to deal with the modern conversation. Mm-hmm. As you know, Nick, my approach is, is a bit the opposite. I'm aware of the modern issues, but instead of trying to deal with it at the level of the modern conversation, I'm trying to go back into the Hebrew text and the ancient world and try to change the conversation. Um, and so that's, you know, it, this does end up a little bit different approach. Uh, at the same time, of course, many people who do apologetics aren't really well-versed in the ancient world and may or may not have capacity to do Hebrew text. Um, so they, they're working in a different sort of discipline. Mm-hmm. I don't want to undermine the value of apologetics, right. but that's not what I do. Uh, I'm trying to understand the, the text and its inherent theology rather than trying to take up an apologetic defense of the text. Again, that has its place and its value, and other people do that, and they do it well, but it's just not what I do. Right. So, I'm sure we've got some people here who are listening who have read those books, including me. And is it, I mean, do you think they can still get a whole lot of good out of those, or would you say they've missed the point entirely, or what? Um, sometimes the, those books end up arguing for something that, in fact, the text isn't doing. And again, it's, uh, they, they're under the impression the text does mean those things. For instance, uh, lots of those apologetics books are working from the premise that the Canaanites have committed offenses for which they're being judged. That this, therefore, is an act of justice that brings punishment to those who deserve it. Mm-hmm. That's a very typical apologetics approach. Um, if this indeed were a case of punishment for wrongdoing, it would make some sense to talk about that. 
The conquest has often been thought of in those terms, but one of the things that we do in the book is to say, no, in fact, we don't think that this is a case where people are being, uh, where the Canaanites, and I'll just use Canaanites for all the peoples of the land here, okay. um, where the Canaanites are being judged uh, for wrongdoing. So at a very basic point is that there, there's a difference. Yeah. And I think we should say something here very briefly also. You said that we, in this book, we should mention, you didn't write this book alone, did you? No, I certainly did not. As a matter of fact, um, you know, my son, John, uh, did, uh, did almost all the writing. And lots of the ideas are his ideas. Uh, I'm listed as a co-author because I was consultant, editor, uh, double-checked all the Hebrew, f- fed and discussed um, the ancient Near Eastern resources. So uh, I was very much a part of the book. But in the end, the main ideas and the writing are his. I'm sure it's a great source of joy to you to see him have a book like this as well, isn't it? It was a delight to work on it together. It was difficult because when we had differences of opinion, we had to try to figure out how to resolve them and how to bring out evidence. Sometimes he had an idea and I would say, oh, I, I can't go there. And um, he, would, he would talk about you know, how he uh, arrived at that and what he felt supported it. He would kind of pressure me to say what supports my view. Uh, even on occasion, he would say, Dad, this is just your hermeneutic. Your hermeneutic leads here. If you're going to stick with your hermeneutic, <laughs> this is where it goes. So we had some interesting conversations like that. It, so is he on the path of being an Old Testament scholar as well? Uh, not Old Testament, although he has a great interest in Old Testament. He's doing work now in analytic theology at St. Andrews. Okay. Now, when you were talking about the Canaanites, I think a lot of people can get kind of confused at this point. And I understand the confusion. I mean, because we can read many, many things in the Bible that do indicate that the Canaanites are doing things that are indeed wicked. We can have archaeological evidence of this. We can see about the, the burning of children to Molech and all these other kinds of things and such. And I think some people might be reading a book and think you're saying, yeah, people were doing that, but that's, that wasn't really a big deal to God. God does, doesn't really care about that. I mean, how, how do we process this exactly? Well, I think we have to take account of a a number of different issues. First of all, some of the general statements about what's usually understood to be the depravity of the Canaanites are generalized rhetorical statements. Just like uh, today when sports teams are, uh, you know, there's going to be a boxing match and you get both of the contestants on there and they're just trash talking each other like crazy. Even in political campaigns, every, every generalized kind of malfeasance uh, is, is aired, suggesting that their opponent is guilty of these things. Good thing uh, we've this moved past that recently, isn't it? <laughs> yes. And this is the way that rhetoric works. Uh, the times where the biblical text talks about the things that Canaanite, the things that are happening in the land, it's not that they've got sort of proof of these practices. Some of them, sure, the Canaanites are worshiping idols. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, Are they slaughtering their children? Oh, that's not as clear. 
that's just the kind of accusation you level against people that you're ready to go into battle with. So those aren't things that there are uh, uh, evidential uh, basis for indictment that's taking place. We spend a, quite a bit of time with this on the text, and it's a complicated issue. And I'm afraid we probably aren't going to be able to do it justice in our conversation today. Uh, people just have to read the, the case for it, um, for this kind of rhetoric. But we give examples of it, uh, both in the Bible and the ancient Near East. And so we talk about those those things, that the Canaanites are not being accused of wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. Now, it's true that the Canaanites worship idols. They use idols in their worship of their gods. But the fact is, they're never told that they can't or they shouldn't. God never indicts them for worshiping of idols. The prohibition with idols is the covenant agreement that Israel and Yahweh have together. Mm-hmm. Israel is not allowed to use idols. The Bible never suggests that other peoples, Canaanites or otherwise, are under condemnation because they use idols. The prophets certainly make the point that those idols aren't doing them much good, aren't doing them any good. But God does not judge them for using idols. So lots of these things that talk about the Canaanite practices, the focus of it is to say, and Israel cannot be drawn into that. Right. And Israel cannot be drawn into it because they are God's covenant people. So these are covenant versus non-covenant issues, as opposed to justice or morality issues. Would this be kind of a thing, for instance, that we, we see hints of in the New Testament? For instance, when Paul goes to Lystra and speaks, and everyone thinks that he and Barnabas are uh, Zeus and Hermes, and he comes out there and arrows his clothes and they get ready to offer a sacrifice to him and says, you know, Please don't do this. In the past, God, and he says the same kind of thing to the people at Mars here, you know, it says, in the past, God overlooked this ignorance, and now he's calling people to repent. Uh, and it's, it's possible that he's talking to them generally about their worship of other gods, not specifically there, of course, to worship of idols. Mm-hmm. But again, we have to ask the question, what, would, what is God holding the Canaanites accountable for? And as we evaluated all the texts, we saw that that really wasn't what was going on. This was not presented as God's judgment on the Canaanites for wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. There's, and therefore, they're not being conquered and slaughtered. Okay, they're being, God says he's going to drive them out of the land. God is clearing the land for another purpose. Mm-hmm. It's not because they've somehow botched it up. Their presence in the land will cause problems for Israel, and that's why they can't be there. Now, I'm guessing you'd probably agree with some of the earlier writers, though, that when it says to utterly destroy everything and such, that quite likely is hyperbolic language, and driving out could be more accurate in those cases. Sure. Uh, and again, the hype. The hyperbolic language is part of the rhetoric for conquest. We see it all through the ancient Near Eastern texts, mm-hmm. and we see it here as well. And again, we try to demonstrate that. Matt, aren't there some places though, where God does indeed judge the people that aren't part of a covenant? I mean, as soon as you start the Bible, one of the first things you see is a flood that pretty much wipes out humanity aside from Noah and 
his sons and all their wives and such. And then you see Sodom and Gomorrah, and these all seem to be clear instances of judgment. So, I mean, but in those situations, the text is very clear mm-hmm. to identify that these are acts of judgment. It's very clear to say what the offenses are. Um, and that they are being punished for that. The, the text gives that information, and that's actually one of the points we make, that if, if the so-called conquest were doing this, it would make those same points. Uh, we find the same thing when God punishes the Amalekites. Um, and again, they very clearly, it tells you, here, here's the problem, and they're being punished for those things. We just don't find that in the, with the Canaanites. Could we also say the same about Numbers 31 with the battle against the Midianites because they, Absolutely. Led, they led Israel? And there it makes it very clear what the offense is and that they are being punished for their offenses. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I don't think you talk about it in the book, but there are, since my audience will encounter these kinds of people out there, there are many who will make the point about how the text says that the men were allowed to keep the virgins for themselves. And so we say, wasn't, is this divine rape being sanctioned in the Old Testament? Well, no, I, I, I don't think that's the case at all. Again, that's exactly the opposite from what's going on with the Canaanites, where they're told they can't marry them. Mm-hmm. They can't take them as slaves. Yeah. And this comes into the meaning of the word harem that we talk about at length in the book. Mm-hmm which doesn't mean to utterly destroy or to place under the ban. What it means is that anything that's harem is ineligible for human use. Mm-hmm. Human use of those peoples who might be captured would be to make them slaves or to marry them. Mm-hmm. But if they're harem, you can't do that. And so it's kind of opposite that situation in Deuteronomy. Uh, the cities are not eligible for human use. The identity and the practices are not eligible for human use. Those are all the kinds of things that are harem. Mm-hmm. And so the Canaanite people have to be moved out of the land because those cities are not eligible for human use. The fact that God gives them back to Israel is seems like it might contradict that. But he gives them tenancy only as the hosts to God's presence. And that's what the land is being cleared for. It's being cleared for God to dwell there. And of course, if we were looking at Numbers 31, verse 0, rape itself would have been condemned in the Old Testament law, so that can't be what was going on there, right? Sure. Um, But again, even as we, and this is one of the things that I'm dealing with in Lost World of Torah, we have to have to be clear that the Torah is not trying to establish an ideal society or an ideal way of life. The Torah is not laying down statutory law. The, statu- the Torah is not doing legislation. The Torah is not doing those things. And if we read it as if it's doing those things, we're misreading it. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest mistakes I think we make with reading the Old Testament is we assume our normal modern-day context and then think, well, you know, this is how the text looks to me, and therefore if a text says something that I find offensive, therefore the text is wrong. Right. We work on our traditional presuppositions about the text, and we work from our modern worldview. And both of those can mislead us. Now, you do have something there also about goodness, that 
we often get goodness wrong, at least in the biblical sense. Uh, yeah, and you know that's since my son's the philosopher theologian kind of guy, uh, that really was the stuff that he was working with, and he's dealing with technical philosophical issues there uh, about how we think about goodness. Mm-hmm. And we can't think about goodness in terms of something that produces what we feel good about and what we consider goodness. Um, that is our happiness. Um, and too often we equate those things that if God is good and he's doing good, that therefore I will experience good. Mm-hmm. Of course, even Paul has to tell us that all things work together for the good, kind of in the larger perspective of God's plans and purposes. Mm-hmm. And so I think we misunderstand goodness. And when we try to impose that definition of goodness on God, then we say, how can a good God do such things? And uh, it's, it's a mistake in our way of thinking about whose goodness and what goodness um, looks like, how it's defined. You know, we, we've had the same kind of problem before in understanding your book, The Lost World of Genesis 1. Uh, I know this show was played, a clip that was played on Bill Craig's podcast, where we talk about the cause in Genesis 1, and he would often understand that in more Aristotelian terms. And that was misunderstanding the text. And I mean, for all for our sense and purposes, I mean, when it t- comes to goodness, Aristotle could be entirely right, for instance, in his definition of goodness, which I think he was. But it doesn't mean the biblical writer back then had that definition in mind, does it? Correct. Uh, again, we, we have to make sure that we're, we've got our philosophical ducks in a row, and that's, that's part of the problem. We have to try to think in terms of the uh, of the ancient text and how they thought. So, um, if uh, if goodness doesn't mean, for instance, Aristotle's that which all things aim and such, what does Moses or the biblical author have in mind when they use the word goodness? Well, when even in Genesis one, where God keeps saying it's good, it's good. What he means is that it's ordered according to his wishes to work the way he wants it to. Mm-hmm. So goodness is relative to what God is doing. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so likewise, the idea of, uh, of course, you know, Joshua, the book of Joshua doesn't say that what God is doing is good. We might assume that it is, but usually it goes the other way. It's, it's us saying, wait a minute, that can't be something that is good. And a good God has to do good all the time. So in that sense, it's regardless of what it might, might have meant in the ancient world, we're using our modern categories to tell God what he can and cannot do. Mm-hmm. Is there any relation, though, to goodness that we have today? I mean, would goodness include any aspect of morality, such as what we usually find in the Ten Commandments? Of course, I'm in Law Sword of Torah, I'm going to argue that the Ten Commandments is not giving us morality. Mm, interesting. Um, so that's that's still a discussion to come. Mm-hmm. Okay, but again, we cannot stand in judgment on God's goodness as if there's something outside of him that he has to um, conform to. 
That's why it's not really a helpful thing to say things like God is just or God is good. Mm-hmm. If by that we mean that there is this abstraction called justice or goodness, and God has to conform to that, we've got a problem. Mm-hmm. Okay, because God is God is not contingent on abstractions or our definitions. Now, again, my son could give much better discussion of this than than I'm doing, because I have my limitations in philosophy. But we have to be careful that we are not trying to hold God accountable. We're not in a position to do that. Some people say the same thing about theodicy, that for us to try to engage in theodicy is a big mistake on our parts. God does not need to be vindicated by us, and his actions do not need to be justified by us. He is who he is. Mm -hmm. I find it interesting when I talk about theodicy, I mean, I, I engaged a problem of evil. We had Clay Jones on just last week talking about problem of evil. But so many times when you read the Old Testament, especially the Psalms, the question more often isn't, are the people going to keep the covenant? The question more often is people are saying, hey, God, are you going to keep the covenant? Mm-hmm, right. And again, it's not that they think he won't. It's just they can't understand how he does. Mm-hmm. But the prophets clear that up for us. Isaiah says, you know, my ways are not your ways, says the Lord, nor are my thoughts your thoughts. Um, that's, we just are often dabbling with things that are above our pay grade. Mm-hmm. Now, I think we could have a brief excursus here talking about a book that could some people do see as dealing with the problem of evil and suffering, but you and Trimper Longman wrote a very convincing book together arguing about it isn't. And that's the book of Job. And I think your book was How to Read Job. If Job isn't really about the problem of suffering, what is it about? Job is a book that pushes the question of what is righteousness all about? Mm -hmm. Um, Job isn't learning about suffering. Job is, uh, the book is asking us to understand what is the nature of righteousness? That is, remember the question posed right from the start, is is Job righteous for nothing? Mm-hmm. Does Job follow God, fear God for nothing? And the inference was that, no, he only fears God because he stands to gain. He's got benefits. Okay, and so he's prosperous, he's wealthy, he's healthy, he's happy. And the suggestion is that that's why Job is acting righteously because he stands to gain. Mm-hmm. And therefore the challenge is, if you take it all away, his righteousness will disappear like the dew in the morning. Mm-hmm. And so it's really asking about the, the nature, the metal, if we can say it that way, the metal of Job's righteousness. Will it stand up under suffering? So it doesn't give an explanation for suffering. It rather helps Job and the readers of the book to ask the question, do I fear God for nothing? Do I serve God for nothing? Or am I just in it because I get something out of it? Yeah, I think we could compare it to asking, for instance, does a Christian worship God because it's the right thing to do? They love God, they want to serve Him, or is it just they want to go to heaven or get the get-out-of-hell-free card? Or we could say, does a husband really love his wife 
Or is he doing it just because he wants the marital benefits that come from it? Sure. Same kind of thing. So that's that's really the, the question in the book of Job. Mm-hmm. Why do you serve God? Why does anybody serve God? Mm-hmm. That's the kind of question we should all be asking ourselves often. Now, and in one sense, it's the same question that was pushed on Abraham when he was asked to sacrifice his son. Because Isaac wasn't just his son. Isaac was the embodiment of the covenant promises. Mm-hmm. So, are you willing to give up the covenant promises mm-hmm. uh, in an act of obedience? Mm-hmm. Same thing. Now, when we talk about how there's no sort of oracle of judgment against the Canaanites, I'm sure some people are like saying, wait, 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 have you forgotten about Genesis 15? I mean, the sin of the Canaanites has not reached its full measure. It sure sounds like God's got a problem with the sins of a people. Uh, it sure does sound that way in that kind of translation. But what we found uh, is that that's difficult to substantiate when you look carefully at the terminology. Again, okay. we spent a whole chapter on this in the book, and it's it's very technical. I don't know if you want to drag your audience through that at this point. But uh, basically, as we looked at all of the major elements of that verse, we found that it really goes a very different direction as, um, as you try to understand what it's talking about. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing that, I mean, I would have always seen it that way, too. One thing that did always strike me as odd about that was it about to the fourth generation. And even if we went with a biblical standard of a generation being 40 years or so, where that still wouldn't get you to the time of the Exodus and such. And even still, if you, even if you went just from the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus, where there was 400 years, but heck, from Abraham to the end of Genesis, there was probably two or 300 years at least. Well, again, what we demonstrated is that whenever the Bible talks about the fourth generation, um, it hasn't figured out how, how many years are in a generation. It's not working on 100 years in a generation. Mm-hmm. Whenever it talks about fourth generation, it's talking about the, the descendants that the person they're talking to will not know. Mm. Okay, so the, you've got your children that you will know, your grandchildren, and you'll probably even see your great-grandchildren born because people had babies early, uh, but you won't see that fourth generation grow up. And so the fourth generation is a way of talking about beyond your lifetime. Mm-hmm. And that's all it's, all it's meaning. And so God has told Abraham that he's going to give him the land. But now he tells them that this is going to be fourth generation, which means that he will not have to drive out his friends. You have to remember that the Amorites in the context of Abraham are his friends and allies. Just in chapter 14. Uh, They joined him in doing battle against the kings of the east. He lives among them, their neighbors, they share resources, and everything's fine between him and the Amorites. Mm -hmm. And notice that Genesis 15, 16 specifically says the Amorites, not the Canaanites and not the whole grocery list, which comes later. Okay, but it's the Amorites. So Abraham's asking the question in his mind, am I going to have to do battle against my friends and allies, the Amorites? And God says, no, this is fourth generation. That is, you'll be long gone before any of this takes place. The other key element in the verse that we talk about is this word avon, which is translated there, the sin of the Amorites. Mm -hmm. 
But Avon, uh, well, Avon has a lot of possibilities. And of course, in some contexts, by context, it can refer to sin. But what we've seen in Genesis, uh, it's constantly being used to talk about what God is doing, a calamity that he is bringing. Mm-hmm. Cain argues that my Avon is too great for me to bear. He's not talking about his sin or his guilt. He's talking about what God has ordained for him. Um, and uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, don't look back, don't turn back, because then the Avon of Sodom and Gomorrah will come upon you. That's not that the sin will come upon them, it's that the calamity that God is bringing will come upon them. We find the same thing in the Joseph story. And so when we look at this word carefully, we find that it's not talking about the sin of the Amorites, it's talking about the calamity that's going to come on the Amorites. That is, that they're going to lose their land. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm thinking about something I've heard before about it. It's, I've been told that Hebrew which I don't really know any of, is a very limited language in many aspects that there's only so many words and one word can often have to take on multiple connotations. Is that accurate? Well, it's difficult to say uh, because, of course, we only have the representation of the Hebrew language that's preserved in this corpus of literature that we call the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there may be many words that are used commonly enough that just have no, they don't happen to come up. You know, mm-hmm. um, if we're talking about some extensive English piece of literature, you know, what, what's the working vocabulary that you'd find if you took only the works of Shakespeare mm-hmm. and took all those works and developed, here's all the vocabulary in Shakespeare. Okay. You couldn't assume that that's, that's all the vocabulary of the language mm-hmm. of, of English at that time. Right. It's just the ones he happened to use. And so in that sense, any, when you're working only from a corpus, you're going to have a limited perspective on the full range of the language. Mm-hmm. I've heard this with some words, for instance. And it would be unfair to take one definition, one word, and plug it in every single time. Remember, Worst cases I think is used is Isaiah 45, 7, where some translations have it says that God says he creates evil. And we say, look, see, there you go. God is the source of evil. And the word, as I understand, doesn't necessarily have to connotate evil as we give it. Uh, that's, that's correct. I mean, that, that word can refer to things that are evil, but basically is much broader in in pertaining to anything that we experience negatively. Mm-hmm. Um, and so God can do that, because God does do things that we experience negatively. Mm-hmm. Um, they, what I tell my Hebrew students quite frequently is that if you're really going to know Hebrew, you're not going to know it because you can attach an English word for a Hebrew word, or that you can translate a Hebrew word into English. You're going to know Hebrew when you read the Hebrew word and you know what it means without putting it into English. Mm-hmm. And that's because there are many words in Hebrew, and this would be true of any languages that you work with, there are many words in Hebrew that don't have precise English equivalents. Mm-hmm. We don't have anything that says that. And that always puts us in an awkward position when we're forced to work in English. Um, you know, the, the ideas can't necessarily be packaged 
in precisely the, the same kinds of ways with words that are equal equivalents. You know, a, a book that I that came out last last year that I was the general editor for the Old Testament on the Cultural Background Study Bible. And in the Cultural Background Study Bible, it has, of course, all the notes throughout are, are backgrounds. They're history, archaeology, um, the geography, uh, manners and customs, the ways people believed, the ways they thought. That's all the study notes. But what I did was in the front matter, I put about a six-page chart of standard Hebrew words, probably about 50 or 60 of them, uh, that don't have clear-cut English equivalents. Mm-hmm. And I talked about what they mean, but of course you have to do that through a paragraph because you can't do it through a certain word. Right. And the words like good and evil were two of them. Um, words like shalom, words like hesed, you know, which is translated in all kinds of different ways, loving kindness, mercy, love, all of those things. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I took those words, those Hebrew words, and then gave paragraph explanations for them to help people try to understand better what's included in those words that we can't really capture in an English, uh, a single English word. I know you were asked this question when you were on Unbelievable debating I believe it was for Lost World Genesis 1, you were on there with a young earth creationist. And I think that the question you were asked is relevant to this kind of topic. And so she asked, well, why don't we just read the text and take it at face value that the text means what it says? Well, it does mean what it says, but the question is, what does it say? Mm-hmm. Um, to understand what it says, we have to understand what the author meant to say by it mm-hmm. and what his audience would have understood and exactly the kind of thing that he had in mind that might be discernible from genre. Um, we always have to work in those terms. Um, so um, it's uh, any any attempt to read literally has to be an attempt on the Hebrew text and the ancient genres. Because mm-hmm. a literal reading has to be based on what they meant to say. Yeah, I, I think it's important, people, that sometimes they miss the fact that to understand a text, sometimes you have to have more than just the text itself, you have to have the background behind the text and how it would be understood to its people that you can't take a t- something that someone says, say, 3,000 years ago, have them say the exact same thing today, and it will mean the exact same thing. We can't count on that. Hmm. To, to try to read an English translation literally means only that you're reading a modern interpretation literally. It doesn't mean you're reading God's word literally. Now, when you talk about how we take our definition of goodness and put it in the text as if the text is trying to teach us goodness, I, mean, I think most of us would say, based on our full understanding of Scripture, that God wants us to be, quote, unquote, good. But that doesn't mean the text is necessarily talking about that. You also compare it to science, that many times people have tried to read science into the text And lo and behold, usually the text is teaching whatever the reigning science is at the moment. Well, it's the communication is operating within 
that cultural world. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and that includes the way they thought about the world around them, the way they thought human bodies worked. The, uh, it, God doesn't upgrade them. He doesn't give them a new sense of anatomy or physiology or science or cause and effect or any of those things. God does not give them a new view of it. Yeah. And therefore, they're reflecting that view. That doesn't mean the Bible is teaching that view. Mm-hmm. The Bible is not teaching physiology or anatomy, neither theirs nor ours. Mm-hmm. The Bible is not teaching cosmic geography, neither theirs nor ours. Right. But the Bible is going to communicate into a world that has certain conceptions, and they're going to end up being reflected. We have to remember that even with something like a, a strict view in, of inerrancy, we talk about the Bible being inerrant in all that it affirms. Mm-hmm. And so that takes some work on our part to figuring out pre- particularly what is it affirming. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, when the text talks about loving someone with your heart and such, it's totally invalid for a modern skeptic come along and say, Boy, those people sure were dumb. All the heart does is pump blood. It doesn't have a thing to do with love in that sense. Love is based on chemicals in my brain and things like that. Correct. Uh, they're just expressing it in their own worldview. And again, it's really important to recognize that God never upgrades any aspect of their science. Mm-hmm. Now, I think we should also spend some time talking about holiness. Because in the Bible commands God's people to be holy, and we're all meant to be a holy priesthood in the New Testament and such, but what does it mean to be holy? See, that's one of the real tricky things here, and um, uh, we had to deal with it here because um, that's often a criteria used in condemnation of the Canaanites, Mm -hmm. uh, that it's a criterion that they were somehow lacking and therefore opened them to judgment. Um, We had originally a fairly extensive and detailed technical chapter on the Hebrew root that's connected with holiness. It's an adjective, it's a noun, it's a verb in many different forms, and uh, it's a complicated word, and so we had a whole chapter on it. In the end, the manuscript was too long, And so we had to cut that out. Uh, But uh, the readers should know, your listeners should know, that it's available for free upload on the IVP website. Mm. If you go to IVP and you call up the page for this book, Lost World of the Israelite Conquest, down at the bottom right, there's a place for additional appendices. And there's three appendices. And one of them is this on the study of the word holy. By the way, before I come back and address holiness, Another one of them is on an, a, a revised and updated version of my treatment of the sun and moon standing still in Joshua 10. Oh, nice. Um, so I give a full explanation of, of all of that. So that's also for free uh, on the website with Ivy Press. Now, back to holiness. Okay. Uh, it really took my son's uh, observations and challenges to persuade me that I was looking at holiness incorrectly. Hmm. Um, He raised the question, in Leviticus 19.2, what is the verb form? We usually translate it, be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so we translate it as an imperative, 
and therefore as an obligation, as a command, uh, you know, something of that sort, something to pursue, something to achieve. And he challenged me on the verb form. And so I, I looked at it, you know, okay, well, fine, I'll take a look at it. And sure enough, it's not an imperative. It's an indicative active form, which means it should be either you are holy or you will be holy. Uh, either way, because it's, yeah, verbless. But at any rate, um, it, no, it's not verbless, but it's an active indicative form. That means that it is a status that is granted not a not a something to be achieved or gained you cannot gain holiness you cannot lose holiness you are holy because god says you are mm -hmm. so when god chose israel as his covenant people he designated them as holy holiness refers to um, maybe it's close to the english word we use divinity Mm. That is, divinity talks about those things which are associated with the divine. Um, they, uh, one word you can use is it's part of the divine constellation, part of the array of everything that is God. Mm -hmm. um, so holiness defines the identity of God. When God designates Israel as holy, he basically folds them into his constellation. I am holy, you as my people are therefore holy. That is, you have that characteristic. It's a status, it's an identity. They can't gain it, they can't lose it. They can live it out in a sense, that is, they can be faithful to that status, just like uh, parents who want their children to, um, to reflect well on the family. Uh, that those are their children, no matter what. Your son, your daughter, that's their status. They can't seek after that. They can't choose it. They can't lose it. But you can either live as the son or daughter of that family, or you can resist it. You right. still are, but you can resist it. So the idea that as God's people, they were holy, and they were called then to reflect the nature of their God in the way that they lived. So they were supposed to reflect that, uh, and in so doing, bring honor to his name. Mm -hmm. exalt, uh, um, exalt his name to, um, to establish his reputation, all of those kinds of things. So they could fail to live up to that status, but that doesn't mean they weren't holy. It only means that they weren't reflecting well on the status that God has given them. We can understand this a bit if you compare it to the, the status that we have in Christ. Mm -hmm. We talk about justification, and we use the concept that we, we are imputed, right. a righteousness, not that we earned, not that we could earn, not that we could gain or lose. It's imputed on us. It's a status. Same thing. It's the same kind of idea. Mm-hmm. Now, what does this mean for us today that some people have grown up and seen kind of holiness as a bludgeon of sorts? And if it kind of seems like doing anything remotely considered wrong and you're just seriously contaminated, you know, I'm probably not explaining where, but you probably know the idea I'm talking about. Oh, sure. Holiness has all kinds of definitions that people use, and they 
you know, they do use it as uh, something that's uh, expressing a piety, expressing a morality, uh, those kinds of things. And we make the case that that is not what these this word does at all. That's not what holiness means in the biblical tent, te- text. Yeah. So what would you say about to someone who says, I'm just not, I'm scared I'm not living a holy lifestyle? Well, you should be asking the question not whether you're living a holy lifestyle. You should be asking the question whether you are bringing honor to God's name. Mm-hmm. You are, as, as Christians, we are his children. Mm-hmm. We've been brought into his family. Are we honoring that identity? Are we honoring that, that, that name of God? Um, we're supposed to be enhancing his reputation by the way that we act. Mm-hmm. Okay? That doesn't make us less holy or more holy. We are holy. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I think it's also worth pointing out that many times in the Old Testament, objects that would not have any connotation of morality and such can be described as holy. Exactly. That's part of the way that, uh, that we ended up substantiating it. Um, many times it's, it's objects that are sanctified or consecrated. Those are all words that have to do with this root, uh, holy. And that only suggests that they are brought into the divine constellation. They are part of the identity of God uh, in various ways. And again, we go through all of those details case by case in this appendix that's online. Mm-hmm. When we look at the concept of holiness, how does this also relate to things like such as objects or people being clean or unclean? Yeah. Um, you know, part of uh, holiness uh, has to do with this clean or unclean status. And, uh, but that has, that has to do with the larger issue of um, order. Yeah. Uh, the Torah is given by God to communicate to the Israelites what covenant order should look like. Mm-hmm. And that includes order within their society, uh, order within their relationships in society, um, order in the community, uh, and order in their interactions with sacred space, with the temple. And so part of order had to do with uh, issues of purity. Now, again, as, I, as the point that I make in Law's World of Torah is that we need to understand that the Torah is specifically situated in the covenant. Mm-hmm. It pertains to Israel's behavior as God's covenant people. Right. And you can't, you can't just assume you can extrapolate those things to anywhere else. They're situated in the ancient world, so they're based on ancient world concepts. And those might not be ones that we share or even understand. And it's also situated in sacred space. That is, this is telling Israelites how they are to conduct themselves in sacred space, in God's presence. Um, So I make a statement that the uh, Torah is not the centerpiece in Exodus. Mm -hmm. The tabernacle is the centerpiece. God is coming to dwell among his people. Mm -hmm. That's what the big big to-do is all about. And the Torah is just helping them to know how they need to operate now that God's presence is going to be among them. I also deal with those issues um, in my book that's coming out in a week or two, uh, The Old Testament Theology for Christians. 
I've already got that one on order from IVP. Very much looking forward to it. Pretty much whenever I get the IVP catalog and I see you got a book coming out, I, I tend to utter a little cheer at least at that point. It gets me very excited. But so that's a book that goes beyond the Conquest book uh, to talk about what's the nature of Torah, what's the nature of purity, what's the nature of sacrifice, what's the nature of covenant. Okay, and we're dealing with those things not only to understand them in the ancient world and in the Old Testament, but also what enduring theology they have for us. Well, when I try to explain purity and such to people today, I often we're using an illustration like, suppose my wife and I were in your area and you invited us over to your house. And we walk in, and as soon as I walk in, I take a handful of dirt and pour it all over your carpet. And there's nothing wrong with the dirt in itself, but the dirt sure doesn't belong on your carpet. Right. Um, we use the example, too, in the Conquest book. This is an illustration John came up with about the operating room. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're going to do surgery in an operating room, you want to get rid of everything that could somehow cause a problem. And that includes bad bacteria, most importantly, but also good bacteria. <laughs> In sterilization, the good bacteria is gone to. And for that matter, it also involves the, um, the janitor who can't be sitting around there doing his cleaning. It involves the relatives of the person being operated on. All of those things are going to be detrimental to the mm-hmm. success of the surgery. But they all have to get out uh, because a certain situation is required. Before we go to the next question, I'm going to take a break to remind everyone you're listening to Deeper Wars podcast. We got Dr. John Walton on here talking about his book, The Lost World of the Israelite Conquest. But if you're here next week, I'm still working on what you're going to be hearing. I had an idea in mind. We had to push that back to December. I've got two possible guests, someone who used to be a spiritualist um, and someone who's minister of lot with Wicca. So that would be, both of those I think could be relevant for Halloween. So Next week's going to be a jump ball. I hope to have something good for you. For now, let's get back to Dr. Walton talking about the lost war of the Israelite conquest. Now, something that's usually said is that Israel drove these people out because of the sins that the people were committing. And we, we can see this because, hey, when Israel did the exact same sins, they were driven out. That's true. Um, the second part's true. That is, Israel was driven out of the land for their sins, but of course, they were in a covenant relationship with Yahweh. And therefore, when they violated that covenant relationship, they lose their status as the hosts for God's presence, and they lose their benefit of living in the land as the hosts for God's presence. Mm -hmm. But the Canaanites were not held accountable to the covenant. They weren't expected to keep the covenant. The covenant was not made with them. And so it's a different reason. 
Um, again, the exile is a very different thing. Even though both the Canaanites and the Israelites in exile have that same characteristic that they have to leave the land. It's for totally different purposes. Again, the Canaanites need to leave the land because the identity that they have will be detrimental to Israel's covenant relationship with God, mm-hmm. and therefore detrimental to the idea of God's presence being there. Um, I don't know if this is a time that's good to talk about the idea of eminent domain that we opened up. Um, you know, this oh, yeah. is always the word harem. Uh, harem, again, is talking about eliminating uh, something from human use. Um, and the land uh, is being taken taken over by God so that he can use it as a place of his presence. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so it has to be cleared out. Again, that's like an act of eminent domain. When a city is going to expand the airport, uh, they exercise eminent domain and people are driven from their homes. Hopefully they do so, not happily, but at least in an understanding way that this is for the good of the community, for the good of you know the, the progress. Um, when a city makes a bid for the Olympics and they get the bid and the Olympics are coming, well, what do they have to do? They have to clear a lot of space eminent domain, people are moved out of their homes in order for the Olympic Village and the stadiums and things of that sort. Again, the greater common good. When uh, a state wants to build an interstate, they're going to use eminent domain and take over land. So these are all situations where there's a greater common good that leads to clearing out the land. And that's, that's what this is representing. Uh, the Israelites are never indicated that they should go chasing after refugees to make sure they slaughter them all. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not the point at all. But of course, if the people resist leaving the land, they're going to be in trouble because they're, they're going to resist. Remember, of the three major campaigns in the book of Joshua, two of them were initiated by the people of the land. Mm-hmm. Northern campaign and southern campaign, both initiated by the Canaanites and the other populations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, even so, we have the speech of Rahab in Joshua 2, which makes it clear that they understand that Yahweh wants this land. Yahweh is giving this land. Yahweh is taking it and is going to be for his own purposes. And yet they chose to work against him. Yeah, we, we can certainly say that they had enough evidence in that case, Karazmi, if you hear that Egypt, the most powerful empire of the land, hasn't been able to stand up against Yahweh, and here come the Israelites, and they're, they're the ones that Yahweh is with, it's probably a good idea to get out of there, isn't it? And that's And Rahab gets it. Rahab even denounces her identity as a Canaanite and adopts an Israelite identity. Because mm-hmm. it's identity that's issue. Again, after World War II, the Nazi party, that was an identity that had to be eliminated for the good of everybody. And so they went about dismantling the identity of the Nazi party, its flags, its buildings, its leadership, and anybody who decided they were going to defend it. Mm-hmm. But you didn't go killing everybody who had some kind of vague association with the Nazi party. You had to eliminate the identity, and it's the identity that is dangerous to Israel as God's covenant people. 
Yeah, I I think this is also part of what's going on since you said they didn't go chasing out after the people and such that Israel is very <clears throat> often told specifically, this is your land, and we're not supposed to expand their borders or anything of that sort. And that, that could be part of a problem of what David did when he had the census done because maybe he was looking to expand his borders. Hard to say. Of course, David exp- had fairly extensive territory, but when we talk about exactly what was the, ter- the territory of the promised land, difficult. But nonetheless, remember that in Deuteronomy, uh, it's made clear to the Israelites that they're not supposed to treat other peoples outside the land the same way that they treat the Canaanites. They don't do harem on places outside the land. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we can see that it's not, I mean, those those cities outside the land are acting the same way that the Canaanites are. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to suggest that the Canaanites are innocent goody-goodies or something no. like that. It's just, that's not, that's not the point. They're not being condemned and judged. Because otherwise, why would the ones just over the border not suffer the same condemnation? And we don't have to look and say that this means the Israelites, or the Canaanites, I'm sorry, weren't the sinners that they often seen as. I mean, heck, if we find the evidence that's accurate that they uh, were sacrificing their children and such, and we can all stand up together and say, yeah, that was a wicked act. That is an act that biblically people would be judged for in the end, but that's not the judgment going on here. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But... Go, I'll go ahead. So, of course, we have to remember that Israel is given tenancy in the land, but it's not their land. It's Yahweh's land. Mm-hmm. And so we shouldn't think in geopolitical terms. We should think in theological terms. It's Yahweh's land because he is going to dwell there. And Israel is given tenancy in the land because they are a kingdom of priests connected to Yahweh's dwelling. That means their tenancy in the land is contingent on Yahweh's presence in the land in the temple. Mm -hmm. And the way they were supposed to live their lives in the land was supposed to reflect the people of Yahweh. In that sense, they were to minister to Yahweh's around them. That would be kind of a way they'd invite others to be part of a covenant, Right. Well, I don't think they're supposed to invite others to be part of the covenant. God doesn't have this open-ended deal where anybody can be part of the covenant. They are a light to the nations, but that's always expressed in terms of the nations will come to them. And that's going to happen as they um, proclaim the name and reputation of God. Mm -hmm. That is, as others see the greatness of God through his work in Israel, they will come. It's not Israel will go. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, they're not trying to bring anybody into the covenant. Their covenant obligations are to exalt the name of Yahweh. Mm -hmm. How would that relate to people today who say, well, it's the way I'm supposed to live my life that's supposed to bring people to Jesus, and then the people themselves will come. We're given a different command, aren't we? Well, certainly we have the Great Commission, uh, that sends, sends forth. Um, and so in that sense, we do that. But even at the same time, our task is to glorify the name of God. You know, 
our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. Uh, this is the obligation that we have. Mm-hmm. But certainly the idea to go out and proclaim God's name and his reputation uh, is the task we have. Mm-hmm. But when we look at the Canaanites against Devarah, a lot of people will stop and like say, look, the practices they've said to, to do, the practices are said to be detestable. I mean, isn't that a pretty clear-cut way of saying that God doesn't approve of the actions of a Canaanite people? Again, that particular translation, uh, I think, misses the point. Mm-hmm. Um, the Hebrew word there is toevah, and toevah refers to something that is, um, that is contrary to order, um, that is disruptive of order. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's always a context for order. That is, um, a righteous person or a wise person can be toeva to a fool mm-hmm. because the fool is thinking of order as they perceive it, order that's focused on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so toeva means it's simply out of order from, uh, from whatever norm is being used. Mm-hmm. So something that is toeva to covenant order would be something like using idols. Mm-hmm. But if you're not in the covenant, using idols is not toy bought to you because the covenant does not define your ordered system. Mm-hmm. So toy va always has to operate within, within a context. Mm-hmm. Would that include, then, for instance, how some people could, for instance, go to a seafood restaurant and order a lobster and... Yahweh says in the Old Testament, that's detestable in that sense. But right. he doesn't mean it's a moral wrong. Correct. There's, they were out of order in covenant terms. Well, what made it so? Well, now that's another question um, that you have to examine the ancient world and things of that sort. Yeah, I, I think the explanation I've heard that seems to fit best was this idea of mixing different spheres of existence together, and so everything was meant to be pure. Uh, yeah, that's Mary Douglas, and th- there's, there's some, some validity to that. Uh, I think also we have to think in terms of association with the world of death. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember, uh, death and dust are connected, and so anything that burrows in the dust that uh, is in the in the ground itself may be coming in contact with death, and that's not that's not good. But uh, it's it's difficult for us to penetrate uh, the logic of an ancient system like that. Yeah, some of that we can also often lose track of is we could study it for the rest of our lives and never come to an understanding of why it was that way. But it doesn't mean the ancient Israelites would not know why it was that way. If we could jump into our time machine and bring just one person back from ancient Israel and be able to ask them today about things in Fator and such, we'd probably learn a whole lot we'd never find out on our own. Well, we'd learn a whole lot, but there's probably things that they no longer understood either. I mean, if you ask people today why they use Christmas trees, they might not know the reason. Mm-hmm. Now, when we start talking about what happens when the Israelites come into the land of Canaan there. Yeah, I, I mean, what, what, how, how would a normal batter 
take place, as it were. Well, again, they're fighting against those who are resisting them. Mm-hmm. So if an army takes the field against them, if an army closes their gates and resists them, well, then the Israelites are going to do battle with them. Mm-hmm. Would the Israelites go and first offer up uh, terms of peace and such, or how would that work? We don't know. Hmm. Doesn't say. Hmm. Yeah, I thought there was something in Deuteronomy about how you go to a city, you offer terms of peace. If they surrender, you make everyone your slaves. If not, you go in, you drive them all out. I don't think that's in the land. They're not allowed to take them as slaves. Right. Now, some things some people wear always have pause with when we get to the, these texts. And it's the same thing that happens in First Samuel 15 with the killing of the Amalekites and such, is that it includes children. And so I think, are we talking about Israelite soldiers going and finding infants and thrusting swords through them or whatever? I mean, is that really what's going on? Well, not with the Canaanites. Again, in, in 1 Samuel 15, that's the Amalekites. Mm-hmm. And that is punishment that is wiping out that, that people group mm-hmm. uh, as punishment from God. That's a different case. That's not the conquest here. Mm-hmm. But, when pe- but there do seem to be some cases like that in the conquest, don't bear over told to kill everything that breathes and such. Again, some of that, uh, we deal with all of those passages, and there are too many of them to go through in detail now, but in many of those, the idea uh, is built into the rhetoric of how they're, they're talking generally about conquest things. It's just using the standard rhetoric of conquest. It, it's kind of a whole thing about sports teams describing yeah. a massacre taking place right. and such. Yes. We're going to slaughter you. Yeah. And it, I, I think it's also important to establish that Flanagan and Copan would be right that this isn't genocide because this wasn't anything against a certain ethnic group whatsoever. Correct. You know, the passage you were talking about on offering peace, that's in Deuteronomy 20. And that's not, that's not describing uh, specifically the conquest of the land. That's just generally in battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they draw that con- contrast at the end of chapter 20 of Deuteronomy. Yeah, some people do look at that passage though, and say, well, geez, the trees are allowed to live, but the people you kill, I mean, does God care more for the trees and the people? Yeah, again, there's the issue here is identity. Mm-hmm. The Canaanite identity is going to be detrimental to the Israelites, as we find it is. I mean, that 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 works out exactly that way, because when they don't clear the Canaanites out, the Canaanites do influence them, and it it has its effect for centuries. Mm-hmm. Now, you said they are not allowed to take them as slaves, but what about people like the Gibeonites who come, and they do make a covenant with them, and the Gibeonites end up being their slaves? Uh, they end up being slaves to the temple. Mm-hmm. That's, they're God's slaves. Mm-hmm. And in that way, again, it was honoring the treaty that had been made, even though it was made under deception. Right. So in that sense, again, their identity uh, was not wiped out because of that, but they were absorbed into the, into the temple. Yeah. Could we say that, although it, 
Judaism at the time wasn't really an evangelistic faith. If anyone did come forward, like, say, Ruth or Rahab, and they wanted to join the community people, they were always welcome to join the covenant people, weren't they? Uh, Again, that's difficult to say. Okay. uh, Because um, we don't have that option offered. Mm -hmm. Again, Rahab accepts a covenant identity. So her former identity is harem, but her person is not. She's allowed to live. Mm-hmm. The Gibeonites, the persons are harem, that is not eligible for human use, but their identity is not. But their identity is isolated in the temple, and therefore removed from use as slaves for Israel. Again, they're slaves to Yahweh. Mm-hmm. Achan, Achan, who steals the stuff from Jericho, is subject to harem. He's cut off from Israel to preserve the identity of Israel. So his identity is eliminated, which means his whole family. Mm -hmm. And when the Gibeonites come in, if I'm remembering my Old Testament correctly, don't the Gibeonites also show up later in the reign of King Saul, where there was some judgment going place, and Yahweh says, this is because you broke covenant with the Gibeonites. Yes. So how, how does that relate to this? Again, at that point, there's a long history that has been established, and presumably the Gibeonites are not operating within society in the same way. But Saul had sought revenge against them, and, um, and so there's some judgment against Saul's house. Mm-hmm. I believe that's in Second Samuel twenty-one, something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, when we do talk about judgment, also, and later on after Israel is established, sometimes when we read the prophets, and Amos starts off talking about the sins of all these other peoples and such. Nineveh is is a preached to by both Nahum and Jonah. And, didn't God go sometimes and give instructions to people outside the covenant to have them to repent? Um, no, the Jonah does not call the Ninevites to repent. They choose that option on their own, hmm. but Jonah doesn't tell them to do so. Hmm. He just tells them they're going to be destroyed. Right. Um, so in, the, in the major prophets, we have the oracles against the nations. Uh-huh. Uh, and in all of those... They're being judged, but not being judged for not keeping the covenant. They're not judged because they're idolaters. Mm -hmm. They're judged because the basic expectations of justice, etc., are not being uh, carried out. Would this be something along the lines we could say about Romans 2, for instance, with the law written on their hearts, that they're doing things that they should have known was wrong to begin with? Well, there Paul is dealing with uh, general revelation and uh, conscience and all of those things. So that gets into even broader issues. But it, they can be based on some of the same things. How would this also relate you know, to a passage like, say, this is one I, I don't think was covered in the book, but when we look at Leviticus 18 and 20, we see a lot of the holiness code and we see the sexual practices that are condemned. And Yahweh says, is for these very same practices that the people are in the land are being driven out. And if you do these, I'll drive you out also. Uh, and that's the point. 
Uh, remember, Leviticus is within the covenant stipulations, and therefore this talks about what Israel is expected to do. Mm -hmm. uh, the Canaanites are characterized that way as part of the general rhetoric, uh, and the main idea is that Israel cannot be uh, allow themselves to be affected by the behaviors of others, mm -hmm. whatever those are. And again, we dealt with Leviticus 18:20 in a couple chapters. At this point, I'd like to remind everyone that you're listening to the Deeper Wireless Podcast, and everything we do here is listener-supported by people like you. And I'd really like to encourage you to please go to our website, deeperwatersapologetics.com. You'll find a link there, help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And when you go there, in the link in there, you'll find that the link to, the link leads you to Risen Jesus. You've gone to the right place. That's my in-laws right there. You go and you make your donation. And you uh, contact me or my wife, Allie, or Mike, or Debbie, and say, hey, I made a donation, and I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. If you don't do that, they have no way of knowing. Now, if you do tell them that, it will be set aside for our ministry. It will be tax deductible. Now, you can also go on Amazon and buy some ebooks that I have written, such as A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian, or co written, such as Defining Inerrancy, which some people could think is probably relevant to what we're talking about today, or Groundless, or God and Natural Disasters, or Christian Answers for This Generation's Questions. And as we've been talking a lot about peace and shalom and things like that. If you want peace with the ladies in your life, sometimes if there is something in there that's interfering with your sacred space, jewelry can be a good way to fix that, to get on good terms with the ladies in your life again. And we do actually have a jewelry store. Our website, my friend Lena Cluster, handles that. And if you want to buy something and you're having a hard time figuring out, get in touch with me or her and We'll help you out. And you can buy something special for that special lady in your life. And whatever you buy, 25% of it will go to support deeper waters. So guys, the way I see it, you can buy something that will make up for that screw up that you recently did with a lady in your life. Or you can buy something that will make up for the screw up that I know you're going to make with a lady in your life. Um, and if you can't do any of these, please at least go on iTunes and leave a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast. I understand it helps other people find out about the show. And it, it's just such a great encouragement when I go and look and I see someone has left a new comment about how they appreciate the show. It really means a lot. Now, Dr. Wharton, do you have an organization that you'd like to see people donate to? 
Well, there's my brother runs an apologetics online ministry. Mm. It's called The Third Choice. Okay. And uh, so that's certainly something that people could check out. He's got information about lots of these issues of apologetics uh, and interacts with people all the time, Christians and non-Christians alike. So The Third Choice. Now, I've done a look here, and it looks like it's the number three rdchoice.org. Is that correct? correct. Okay. Uh, if, if you type in the third choice here, you will get that coming up as a thing. But if you want to just go directly to your bra- web browser, it's the third, in, um, in numerical terms, free rdchoice.org. Yep. And run by your brother. I will have to look at that one here. Now, he was a youth pastor for 35 years, so mm. he he encounters this, you know, encountered this stuff all the time. Yeah, and obviously very familiar with a problem of suffering then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, getting back to the conquest here then. Now, what about when some cities would be approached? Sometimes they'd be told, destroy everything, destroy the city, etc. And sometimes they say, you can keep some of the goods for yourselves as plunder. Do do we understand what the difference is between those cases? There's a difference in whether they're in the land or not. Okay. The Israelites were not allowed to keep anything as plunder that from the cities in the land. Mm-hmm. The gold and silver could be given to the tabernacle. That's not for Israelite use. That's for God's use. Mm-hmm. And that was the sin that Achan did, where he took that which was the use of God and made it for the use of him, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. Now, this is all under the category of harem. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of treating cities this way uh, is known in the ancient Near East, and we go through that in the book and talk about those characteristics. Um, and so this is this is a category of thinking that, that we know from the ancient world. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not a matter of holy war. It's not a matter of jihad. Um, it's not a matter of genocide. Uh, it's it's not any of those modern sorts of things. Uh, there's nothing comparable for anything. You know, you can't talk about the Crusades as somehow connected to the uh, the conquest under Joshua. Again, I don't even think the term conquest is very helpful. It's the idea of clearing the land because it's Yahweh's land. Mm-hmm. It's not clearing it for the Israelites. It's clearing it for Yahweh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, let's have a little bit of talk about when we've said the term harem, what do we mean? Because some people out there could be thinking, mm, harem, isn't that where the king keeps all of his women and such? <laughs> Interesting. Uh, they, they do eventually go back to the same kind of root, uh, <laughs> the, the harem, uh, but the harem is ineligible for normal human use, right? The, the king's harem, all his wives, that's not for human use, that's only for the king. So that's kind of the connection. But harem in the Old Testament refers to, again, anything that is set apart as being not for human use. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, we didn't come up with that just ourselves. Uh, you, know, you read Jacob Milgram's monumental three-volume commentary on Leviticus, and he gives that identification of harem as well, ineligible for human use. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about something being harem in the Bible, it doesn't necessarily mean it was destroyed or anything. It just meant like, here's, here's the divine sphere, here's the human sphere, whatever I give you, you can use, but some things are set apart for me. So, And, and again, some of the things, uh, the cities, 
goods were destroyed, not plundered, again, because that's the way to make sure they weren't for human use. Mm-hmm. So the very idea of what took place with Joshua and the Israelites is very different from how armies usually work. Usually armies are gaining plunder. But here, there was no plunder that came of it. It made it a very different sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And based on what you'd said earlier also, there is no basis whatsoever for looking at this and saying, well, this is a justification for any kind of warfare today to go on. Correct. And again, we spent a chapter on that in the book just to make sure that people didn't get that wrong. Yeah. I, I know you're not an authority on Islam here, but I think a lot of people could say that if you're trying to compare jihad to what goes on in the Old Testament, the difference is the Old Testament is to one specific people at one specific time for one specific purpose. Jihad isn't like that. Correct. Mm -hmm. Um, On page 257, we have the conquest is not a story of bigotry and butchery. Mm -hmm. Neither is it a story of mercy and grace. It does not tell us that the Israelites valued the same things that we do, and it does not tell us that we should value the same things that the Israelite did. It tells us what God did so that we can understand what God is doing today, not so that we can do the same things today that God did then, or argue that what God did then was the same thing that we think or prefer that God would do today. So again, we're just trying to sort all those things out. Yeah, you know, that leaves me wondering here when you say that so we can understand what God is doing today. How can the conquest tell us what God is doing today? Well, at that point in the text, we had just talked about the idea that when we think about applying what we learn in the conquest to today, Mm -hmm. we should talk about the things that um, are no longer available for human use as we eliminate an identity. Mm-hmm. Christians know this well. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But it's not I, it's Christ living in me. Mm-hmm. Our identity is crucified, and we have a new identity in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, our old self is not eligible for human use. We are a new creature. We are a new creation. Mm-hmm. And so the, the parallel between Old Testament and New Testament, what is God doing today? God is eliminating those identities in us that are detrimental to the status we've been given as his holy people. Mm-hmm. And so we're not conformed to this world, we're transformed. And all of those things that we value very highly, we recognize these things in the New Testament. We are made new people, mm-hmm. and so our old identity, and so we are no longer uh, think of ourselves in our old identity, not male or female, not Jew or Gentile, not slave or free, but we are in Christ. We have a new identity, I and mean, that's where the, the application takes place. I remember when we lived in Knoxville, we loved our church there, and we had a pastor who gave a sermon talking about the people of Israel. And he said, you know, sometimes we can go over the text and read about Israel making all these decisions and doing the wrong thing over and we can look and we say, how can you all be so dumb? I mean, don't you see what God's done for you and yet you resist over and over and over again? 
And then the pastor rightly said, except are we really much better than they are? If anything, we have more reason to believe in Yahweh than they did with Jesus and such in the resurrection. And we're pretty resistant ourselves. We tend to have difficulty overcoming our conventional ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. We have difficulty changing our worldview. We have difficulty giving up our self. Mm -hmm. And Israel had those same difficulties. We're not struggling with the same worldview issues that they did. And so we look at the worldview issues they struggled with, and and we say, how could they not get this right? They could probably just as easily look at some of the worldview issues we struggle with and have the same questions. How come we can't get it right? C.S. Lewis once wrote, it's easy for one culture to focus on one kind of virtue or something of that sort and ignore everything else. And that's why we need to interact with other cultures. For instance, our culture today claims to place a great value on tolerance and compassion, but there are many, many other sins that a lot of our predecessors would look and come to us today and say, why the heck are you doing these things? These are just dumb. And we would have looked and said, why don't you have more com- why didn't you have more compassion and have more tolerance back then? And we we think in terms of uh, individual rights. Right. And the ancient world where identity was communal, not individual, and where they didn't think in terms of themselves having rights would look at our way of thinking and say, that's crazy. That'll never work. And yet for us, we don't, we, we not only defend it, we say this is by far the best way to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's, uh, it leads us into difficulties. Yeah. And for many of us, it just seems so patently obvious that we, and that's part of the problem we have when we approach the Old Testament and even the New Testament that matter. We can't imagine People are thinking any different sort of way whatsoever. And that that's to our detriment, especially when we try to uh, understand Scripture. Mm-hmm. Now, what would you say to people who are trying to put their heads around this whole concept of a communal identity as opposed to an individual identity? Uh, again, it's tough for us to even understand because we just don't think that way. Right. We think of everything in terms of um, the individual. And so we don't think that you would find your identity and your focus and your purpose and everything about you, your sense of self, uh, all in a community. Mm-hmm. But it's very clear that the our individualism is idiosyncratic. It's exceptional in the history of civilizations. Um, even today's world, um, you'll find a very strong communal identity in other cultures. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're the odd ones out on all of that. And it's difficult for us even to, to think in those kinds of terms, uh, to think of. But those are the things that led to, to arranged marriages. Right. An arranged marriage reflects the idea that that marriage is good for the two communities, the two families, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of whether how the people feel about each other. How they feel about each other doesn't really make a difference. Right. Okay. Now, um, 
you know, part of this idea of trying to think beyond our culture. Uh, we described it in the book in terms of the metaphor of the cultural river. And that's early on in pages eight and nine, that we have our own cultural river uh, that for us involves all sorts of things like, like individual rights, freedom, capitalism, democracy, globalism, post-colonialism, post-modernism, market economies, expanding universe, empiricism, all of these things are part of our cultural river. And the Old Testament world knows nothing of any of those. Mm -hmm. And yet we often try to make the Old Testament address those specifics. But the Old Testament does not anticipate our cultural river. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, if you, if you tried to say, well, yeah, it's God's wording, and God does that. But wait a minute. Across the scope of history and, and time and culture, we've got thousands of different cultural rivers. And nobody, I don't think, would claim that the Bible anticipates the specific problems or obstacles in every single one of those cultural rivers. Right. Medieval France, really? Uh, Byzantine Rome? Uh, it, every single cultural river with all of its idiosyncrasies? And yet we somehow think that the Bible is going to address the specifics of our cultural river. And so we ask questions of climate change and immigration and stem cell research and sexual identity and so many of the things that are part of our cultural river. And we expect that the Bible anticipates them and speaks to them. Mm -hmm. And I would claim that it doesn't. You know, when I encounter someone who says to me, well, I think the text should be clear. I always ask the same kind of question. Okay. Who should it be clear to? Should it be clear to a 21st century American, a 19th century Russian, a 17th century Japanese, a 15th century Chinese, on and on and on? Because all of these people have different ideas of what clear would be. And usually when people say, I think they don't mean clear to every other culture. They mean clear to our culture because, you know, we're just so awesome and all that. And when the, when the reformers talked about the plain reading of the text and the perspicuity, the clarity yeah. of the text, uh, they're not talking about the idea that everybody will understand everything inherently. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, the reformers wouldn't, wouldn't have written hundreds of volumes of theology and commentary. Yeah. They mean that when they say the plain reading, it means it doesn't have a mystical meaning that only the initiates can understand. It's a plain reading that anyone reading the text could understand. And that plain reading is talking about that level of reading. It doesn't mean every passage will be crystal clear. Right. But the basic message of the gospel is clear enough, and anybody can understand that. Yeah. So we have to be careful not to think that when the Reformers talked about this issue, that they were talking about the idea that anybody can read Scripture as well as anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not saying any such thing, and they didn't believe that. I, I know you'd encourage our listeners, as I would, go out and try and read some of the best scholarship and such they could on the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. But at the same time, <clears throat> I don't think you'd say that if you don't have that, you're going to pick up your Old Testament and everything's going to be a mystery. You're still going to get a lot out of the Old Testament anyway, aren't you? Uh, there's a lot that we can understand, but there's a lot we can't understand. I use the example... You know, I'm not real handy around the house. So when something goes wrong with the plumbing, mm -hmm. now I'm going to go in and take a look and see if I can figure it out. Maybe, maybe it's just a leak that I can tighten a 
uh, a joint and it'll be fine. Um, and so I'll look and see. But lots of times I say, well, okay, this is, this is not something I, you know, I can see what to do or can figure out. So I call in a plumber. Mm-hmm. And maybe the plumber will come and pull out this handy-dandy specialized tool and in five seconds fix it. And my response would be, boy, if I had a handy-dandy tool like that, I could have fixed that too and saved myself the 50 bucks of the plumber coming out here. Um, but then there's other times when, no, the plumber comes and there's serious uh, systematic issues, programmatic issues, and they need to do some, some serious plumbing work. And I say, I don't care what tools I had. I would never do, be able to do that. And it's the same thing with, with any area of specialty, biblical studies included. Sometimes you can go in there and, and do a little work at it and figure it out yourself. Other times you learn that if you had a particular tool, and of course we're, we're talking about research tools here, if you had a particular tool, you could figure that out. Mm-hmm. But then there's other times where it's just uh, you need a real specialist who understands uh, the, the depth of the thing to try to help out. And that's okay. You know, it, scholars have their place just like anybody has their place in the, in the body of Christ. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody's got their role to play. And I don't take anyone else's role away from them and call them elitist when they can do it and I can't. And likewise, I expect people to recognize that I have a contribution to make to the body of Christ. Uh, and scholars do. And we need to respect that and let them do the work that they're called to. Yeah, I, I'm thinking about how when you wrote your book, The Lost Word of Adam and Eve, and you had a chapter on Paul's understanding of Adam. You didn't write that yourself. You asked N.T. Wright to write it because that's his area. That's right. Now, if you were asked to preach at your church or a chapter at Wheaton sometime a sermon on the Israelite conquest, what would you be saying? Well, I've been doing those kinds of things recently. I just spent a week at a Bible conference in August and uh, morning by morning taught through the, the conquest, well, through the book of Joshua, which included the conquest. And again, I'd be focusing on the theological issues about what's involved, uh, about the importance of, of identity and maintaining our identity the, um, in terms of what God was telling them of clearing space for God. Um, you know, it's Here's an illustration I use. When when Jesus drove out the money changers, Mm -hmm. uh, one of the gospel accounts is very clear. He drove out the money changers and their customers. Mm -hmm. Their customers weren't doing anything wrong. And even the money changers are doing something that needed to be done. It's just it doesn't belong here. He drove them out because that activity was inappropriate for the temple. Mm-hmm. And so you can use examples like that. Another example from the Gospels, when it's time for, the, for Christ's triumphal entry, he sends the disciples to go and, and retrieve this donkey. It's not his donkey. And the, they're told, if the owner comes out and questions what you're doing, you just say, the Lord has need of it. Mm-hmm. That should be sufficient. And so in the same sense, you know, when you look at the land, the Lord has need of it. And he's driving out the money changers, so to speak. That doesn't belong here. And so that's the land is being preserved for what it's supposed to be used for. Mm-hmm. So I use examples like that to try to help people understand 
the passage in a different way. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the illustrations I was thinking of, for instance, when my wife and I got married, one of the favorite parts of every to every man was when he says, you may kiss for bride. <laughs> and I, someone else to each other said, honey, you know, we kissed in church before. It's no big deal and such. Now, if you kiss for bride during a wedding service, everyone expects that. If you start making out right there in front of a pastor, that's out of place. Yeah, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Now, what about sacred space today? How does the conquest relate to our need for sacred space today? Well, of course, sacred space took a couple quantum leaps and changed considerably. Um, uh, when the incarnation took place, the word became flesh and he tabernacled, dwelt among us. That was God's presence being made, uh, being actualized mm-hmm. uh, through the, the, the incarnation. When we get to Pentecost and the spirit descends and God's people become the temple, as Paul tells us in Corinthians. Um, again, sacred space is taking a, a real change in direction at that point because it's no longer in geographical space. It's now in what we could call anthropological space, That is, but it's still community. God indwells his people mm. as a community, just like the body of Christ is the community. The Spirit indwells us as a community, and we, the community, are the temple of God. Mm-hmm. So we still need to be aware of God's dwelling among us, and that that calls on us to be the right kind of people who honor God's name and proclaim his, his reputation. Mm-hmm. And so we are, we are called to maintain order in the new covenant. New covenant order is different from old covenant order. Mm-hmm. And so we're called to, uh, to preserve order in this context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a New Testament guy, I'm thinking about when Jesus came, the things that he was doing, he was doing things that were meant for the temper, like forgiving sins and claiming people clean and such. And he was doing them in his own person as a way of saying, you know, right now the temper is being made irrelevant. And then he comes and gives the Holy Spirit and it's a way of saying just what Peter and Paul say later on. Now the temper is destroyed. The new temper is us. You and I are the the temper. Mm -hmm. Now we can also add in that to be part of a Israel identity, I mean, it wasn't necessary, but often it was connected to your genetics. That uh, if your parents were Israelites, well, you were Israelites. Now today, if your parents are Christian, you'll probably be raised Christian, but you're not considered a Christian yet. That being a Christian isn't about genetics. It's about your own choice. In that case, individual choice does matter. Sure, we are in Christ. That's our identity. And that identity is not ethnic in nature. Uh, That identity is based on um, our responses to the work of Christ and responses to God as he has made provision for us through his son. Uh, So in that sense, we have to join the group. Uh, Israelites joined the group by being born into it and being circumcised. Mm -hmm. Uh, We join the group through baptism and uh, the 
celebration of communion, Eucharist, Mass, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so we uh, reflect our identity in a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dr. Warren, what would you say, though, if you were out doing some evangelism or something and you encountered someone who was a skeptic of the Christian faith and their main objection was, you know what, I, I have a problem with the God of the Old Testament. You can think about Richard Dawkins's description of the God of the Old Testament and such, hardly flattering at all. And we said, <laughs> right. this is the kind of God I just have a hard time believing and worshiping. And, and it's, it's just such a huge barrier for me. What would you say to a skeptic like that? Well, I would say they have to pay better attention to the way that the Old Testament portrays God and the way that God portrays himself in the Old Testament. Uh, he's working from misconceptions, mm-hmm. uh, and they're misconceptions that already derive from his skepticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the idea would be that he needs to become more acquainted with exactly what's going on in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a, there's a whole education that's needed in order to understand all of that. Uh, he's willing to think the worst. Uh-huh. He's willing to be skeptical. He's willing to um, apply a simplistic reading. He's willing to um, apply a modern um, sensibility scale. Uh, he's willing to hold God accountable. He's not willing to trust. I, I just say these things from how he acts. I don't know the man. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but uh, all of these kinds of things, this is typically true of, of skeptics. Um, and so they're kind of working from their own grid, which is anachronistic and simplistic. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of them have, uh, have, I think, often the same kind of qualities that we see in the fundamentalist Christians that they regularly condemn. It's why I often use the term fundamentalist atheists. Both of them treat the Bible the exact same way. It's just one tends to think everything in there is wrong and one thinks everything in there is right. But the methodology is very much the same. Sure. And again, the simplistic reading is very much the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we also see that from serious Bible scholars. I, I often feel like Bart Ehrman is not, he's reading the text like a fundamentalist still. Yeah. Instead of reading it in any kind of nuanced or informed way about um, the ancient world and things of that sort. And even though he doesn't have his fundamentalist belief anymore, he's still reading the Bible as a fundamentalist. And his critique is based on that level, in my opinion. Yeah. Craig Evans has been on the show twice here. Uh, he and I have a good relationship, and he has said in one of his books that Bart Ehrman is on a flight from fundamentalism. And I still thoroughly agree with that. I think that's why inerrancy is sadly such a big hang-up for him. I mean, he, even when he debated Tim McGrew on Unbelievable, one of the first questions he asked is, hey, what's your stance on inerrancy? Mm-hmm. And again, that's why Brent Sandy and I wrote the book, Lost World of Scripture, uh-huh. so that we could explore uh, a f- much more nuanced understanding of inerrancy. Mm-hmm. And if anyone's interested, I think it was in the first year of the show, 2013, we did have Brent Sandy on to talk about the Lost World of Scripture. And it, it certainly is a very, very fascinating read. Everyone should read this book to understand it. And 
I'll go ahead and also make a plug for something else you mentioned earlier. The Bible I am going through right now is the Cultural Background Study Bible, and it is incredibly helpful. So I encourage everyone out there in listener land to try and get your hands on these resources if you can. The, the material is excellent, and if you're wondering, John Wharton does indeed handle the Old Testament. The New Testament is handled by another friend of the Deeper Waters podcast, Craig Keener, who's been on here twice before. And yes, we're working on the third time right now. Well, thanks for the plug, Nick. Mm-hmm. Had to do it. Now, what would you say to the person I'm here who's listening to the show, who is a Christian apologist? They're not the simplistic reader and such. They want to engage the best material and such. And they're wanting to learn how to argue when the objection of the Canaanite conquest comes up, what would you encourage them to say or do? You know, basically I would say that you need to dive into this book and master the material here. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not a simple conversation. No. It's it's not an easy conversation. And of course it quickly becomes a, a he said, she said kind of thing because when you say, oh, it shouldn't be translated that way, it should be translated this way. Mm-hmm. Well, for most people doing apologetics, they don't know, they don't control the Hebrew themselves. And so they feel like they're going out on a limb a little bit. Um, so it's it's a complicated issue. Right. Um, and uh, so all I can say is make yourself aware of all of the different aspects that need to be understood. Mm-hmm. Uh, ancient rhetoric, uh, the ways the warfare is talked about in the ancient world. Uh, the meanings of Hebrew words, uh, and and just to work through it. Mm-hmm. I think part of the problem in our culture today for both Christian and non-Christian is we live in a time where we want quick, instant answers, just like we want right. quick, instant food, quick, instant transportation, everything. And some questions, they're, they're just, now they're not instant answers for some answers, just on easy answers, period, to begin with. And in the very beginning of this book, we make the point that don't think that by reading this book, you're going to have all the answers and everything's going to be cleared up and, and easy and wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it doesn't do that. Uh, it tries to reset our understanding and our, our reasoning process. But this is still war taking place. And there's still... There's still warfare. There's still death of innocence. Undoubtedly, we, we can't change that and can't solve the problem that way. Mm-hmm. But the point we make at the end is that uh, all of us would recognize that there are uh, some wars that were fought for reasons that we revile. We mm-hmm. think of the Crusades. But there are other wars that are fought for goals that we consider noble or valuable, mm-hmm. as we think often of the American Revolution or the Civil War, or even World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're wars that have to be fought. And so this doesn't eliminate warfare. There was warfare in the time of Joshua. Mm-hmm. Um, but it tries to give you a, what the biblical perspective on these events was. And again, it's not summed up by the word conquest. Mm-hmm. God is clearing the land for his use. Well. If anyone out there is interested, we're getting to a point where we have to wrap things up. The book is The Lost War of the Israelite Conquest. At the time of this recording, I've brought it up right now. The Kindle version is eleven ninety nine. 
the paperback version is 1415. It, it, is a, it is a difficult book, much more so, I think, than the other ones, because it's the whole idea is so radically different from everything we've had, but it's one year you need to have, and even if you're not convinced, you still need to see the opinion here being told. I, I, it's left me a lot to chew on and think about here. Now, uh, Dr. Walton, do you have a blog and email website where people can get in touch if they want to find out more? Um, I don't have a blog. My website is just the college. I don't have a website. I have college, a page on the college website. Mm-hmm. So that's you can get get in touch with me through through the college. Okay. John.Walton, Wheaton.edu. Do you have any uh, final words you'd like to leave today for the Deeper Waters audience? You know, I think it would just be uh, be open-minded. Be willing to look at issues again in light of new information. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mean that you're going to agree with a conclusion. Right. You know, I don't read a book or a commentary because... I expect I'm going to agree with everything the person says. Mm-hmm. But I want to learn from what they have to offer. I want to gain information that they might have that I don't have. Mm-hmm. And so I see it as a matter of, of gaining access to information that's going to help me think through things. Mm-hmm. And that's what we hope to provide for people. Um, you know, these are tough issues. And so the more information we can gain, the better. So I'd like to encourage people to do that. Uh, to think about the approach, the method, using the ancient world, reevaluating Hebrew text. These are important methods for us. And so I hope that people can, can see the benefit of that. Dr. Walton, you're one of my favorite guests to have on. It's great to have you again, and I hope we'll have you back here again sometime. Thanks, Nick. I can mind everyone next week. Where is the jump bar? We could be talking about Wicca. We could be talking about spiritualism. I'm thinking we're going to have something relevant to Halloween next week. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off.